Shalom and thank you for clicking to listen to one of our audio messages. At Tikvat David, we are building a Yeshua-centered Judaism for Israel and the nations. We hope that this message will encourage, inform, and inspire you to follow Yeshua and to walk in the pathways of Torah. Enjoy. So we've reached the final book of the Treasar, the prophet Malachi. Uh, and so I'm curious, what comes to your mind when you think of Sefer Malachi, the book of Malachi? We, you know, now we um, we really don't uh, have any personal information in the text about Malachi. However, his name uh, itself is intriguing, which has inspired some debate about his identity in Jewish tradition. So the name Malachi means my messenger. And the Hebrew word malach can also mean angel, which makes sense being that an angel is a messenger of God. Now, there's also some debate in Jewish tradition whether or not Malachi is a formal name, or rather if Malachi is more expressing the role of the writer as a messenger of God. According to some in Jewish tradition, Malachi is Ezra. Uh, The rationale there being that they seem to have some similar concerns, such as priests uh, intermarrying. So this theory of Ezra being the author is actually found in the Gemara as part of the Talmud, and uh, Rashi also notes this, though Rashi doesn't necessarily argue for this. Now, there's another opinion that Malachi is Mordecai from the Book of Esther, which from a time standpoint, that could potentially work. Uh, However, the majority opinion in Chazal and among the sages is that Malachi is his own person. Now, uh, as far as the time goes, it's generally agreed that Malachi is writing a generation or two after Haggai and Zechariah. Uh, remember that those two prophets, which we discussed previously, were writing uh, to the first wave of exiles who had returned to Israel from Babylon in the early 500s. And it was that first generation under the leadership of Zerubbabel and Joshua, they were the ones who rebuilt the second temple. Now, uh, we think Malachi is later because his concerns assume that the temple and the priesthood uh, has been up and running for a while. Specifically, enough time has passed that corruption has reemerged within, within uh, the priesthood, and this corruption is really central to Malachi's concern. So a, pre- a precise date is, is not possible to determine for Malachi, but Somewhere in the early part of the 400s uh, BCE seems reasonable. So we're talking about maybe 50 to 100 years uh, have passed since Zechariah and Haggai. Well, moving on to the text, the framework of Malachi is unique. Uh, Basically, the flow of the book is a dialogue where God says this, but Israel says that. And that's how the prophet begins in the very first breath. So let's take a look at the first few verses of Malachi to get a feel for this. So I'm going to start in verse 2, which says, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, We are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins. The Lord of hosts says, They may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. So in verse 2, it says, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you, Israel, say, How have you, you know, they're, they're questioning. They say, How have you loved us? Uh, in this sort of rhetorical dialogue. So I I think the thinking behind the Jewish response here is, look, God, 
you destroyed the first temple, we were in Babylon for 70 years, now we're back home, we've been here for a while, and things still really are not that great here. So it's like, God, are you calling that love? Uh, sort of is the, in this rhetorical dialogue that's going on here in the first few verses. So God responds in verse 3 and says, well, look what I did to Esau, to Edom. Uh, I've protected you from your enemies, and I'll continue to do so. You know, and I think the reference there is to Edom being destroyed by Babylon. And then verse 5 suggests that the people are okay with God's response because they say they themselves say prophetically and rhetorically, okay, yes, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Now, uh, in light of God's affirmation of his love for Israel, in verses 6 through 14, God has a complaint against Israel. In these verses, God is saying that he does not feel that his love for them is being reciprocated. Namely, he's upset with the priests in particular and the entire manner in which the sacrificial system is being conducted. As we noted, the Beit HaMikdash, the temple, has been rebuilt and it's been operating for some time now. The priests have been doing their thing and sacrifices are being brought. But the problem is that the Jewish people are basically being uh, really cutting corners with the sacrifices. Uh, it's well known, based on the teaching of Torah, that sacrifices, uh, korbanot, brought to the altar in the temple were to be unblemished. They were to be of the highest quality. But let's look at the text and observe what's going on here. Starting in verse 6, God says, A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts, to you, O priests, who despise my name? But you say, how have you despised your name? And then in verse 7, it says, by offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals and sacrifice, is, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? Okay, so that's the end of the, the excerpt. That's uh, Malachi 1, verses 6 through 8. So God's like, don't expect me to show you favor if this is how you're going to worship me. If you're going to bring me blind and you know blemished animals, if that's the, that's the best you're going to offer, you want me to bless that? In fact, God goes on to say in verse 10, in hyperbolic fashion, he says, I just wish somebody would just shut the temple doors and close the whole operation. Let's read that. It's pretty strong. God in Malachi 1.10 says, Oh, that there were one among you who would just shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. So I think a good, you know, it's, it's good to pause here because clearly they were, they were cheating God in a sense. And so, you know, I'm curious... Uh, you know, or want to encourage you to think, you know, what are some modern examples of, of cheating God? Maybe, you know, we're not giving, uh, maybe we're not being generous. Maybe we're not, if we're a part, uh, you know, of a congregation, of course, you know, most of the people listening are part of TikBot. I'm very grateful for the generosity of our community. Uh, but, you know, if, if somebody is, let's just say, benefiting, you know, from the synagogue, but not giving when they have the ability to do so, or, or, you know, not giving at all to causes which expand the kingdom of God. You know, there's so many different ways you can cheat God, not just with money, but with your time or with your values or whatever it may be. So that is something that was going on in the temple. And of course, there are modern applications of that as well. Now, moving on to chapter two, Malachi fixes his attention on the priests. And as we've seen at other points in the Treasar, God is not happy with the way the priests are acting uh, a, a lot of the time. 
uh, in these first few verses of chapter 2, God is holding the priests primarily responsible for what was going on in the temple with the faulty sacrifices. Uh, true, that the people had their part and that they were bringing the subpar sacrifices in the first place. Blind, lame, sick animals. But it really was the job of the priest to guard the gate, if you will, and keep any unfit sacrifices from being slaughtered. But the priests weren't doing that. And this brought shame and corruption to the covenant. So let's look at chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. It says, So shall you know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people shouldn't seek instruction from his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despise and abase before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways but show partiality in your instruction. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? So, the sacrifices, when done properly, were supposed to bring life and peace because the sacrifices were a means of cleansing the altar so that God's presence could dwell in their midst or was a means of worship to God. And the sacrifices were you know, a way for people to really draw near to our Father. But this was all being corrupted by the priests who were also guilty of some kind of corrupt teaching that the text says involved partiality. So I'm curious, what, what, what is this partiality referring to? Now, the prophet Malachi does not specify what the nature of this partiality is on the part of the priests, but various interpreters see this partiality as being directed at converts to Judaism. And that idea makes some sense. I'm not sure it's right, but it makes sense based on verse 10, which says, have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? Which may be a defense of the converts as deserving equal treatment. And I think that the prophet may be highlighting some irony here. Maybe on the one hand, converts to, to Judaism uh, in this uh, in, in, in view here, maybe they were getting snubbed in some sense in the temple offerings. But on the other hand, Malachi goes on in the next few verses to note that Judah, and specifically the priests, had corrupted themselves because they had married foreign wives. So if the theory is correct, the priests uh, are snubbing converts to Judaism uh, in the temple, but yet they're marrying pagan Gentiles who have not converted. And so this is profane, and it's an abomination, and it's unequal weights and measures. It's a lack of justice, and it is the kind of partiality that makes God mad. So another good question is, in modern times, what kind of partiality in religious circles might or does make Hashem angry? Well, I have one example, specifically in a Messianic Jewish context. I think when Gentiles are made to feel like second-class citizens uh, in Messianic Judaism, that's a huge problem. It's one thing to celebrate and protect the unique roles of Jews and Gentiles in Messianic Judaism. That's something we strongly affirm here at Tikvat David. But it's another thing to have a religious culture which minimizes the equality of Jews and Gentiles. A central Messianic reality is that in Messiah— Jews and Gentiles are given equal status, while their identities remain distinct. If that's lost or blurred, then messianic kingdom realities are lost and blurred. Okay, we have 
time for two more texts today, and we're not going to spend much time on either one, but we can't skip these. I want to look at Malachi chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. It says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old and, in, and as in former years. Now, it's generally agreed that the Lord whom you seek in verse 1 is a reference to the Messiah. So there's really a lot to say about this text, but I have, you know, one thought, you know, uh, or kind of a question and a thought, you know, what, what is this text saying will be the relationship between the Messiah, the Lord who is to come, and the temple sacrifices in the Messianic era? I mean, is there harmony here or disharmony? Well, I think there's tremendous harmony. This, the Lord whom you seek, the master whom you seek, suddenly coming to his temple, this messianic character, this messenger of the covenant, um, he sits and he is a refiner. Uh, he purifies the sons of Levi so that they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. And that then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem is pleasing to the Lord. So that's a really important text. There is in this vision of the future, there's perfect harmony between the Messiah and the temple and the sacrifices. So it's really not the Messianic era unless there is compatibility between the Messiah and the temple sacrifices. And I know that is contrary to many theologies which see Yeshua as replacing the temple or replacing the sacrifices. Now, of course, there's no standing temple, no ability to offer the Levitic sacrifices. But when that reality when that opportunity returns, uh, that will be something that, again, it's not pitting Yeshua against the temple or against the sacrifices. Uh, these things work together, at least in the line, uh, in the you know in the mind of Malachi, as expressed in this text, and I would say in in many other texts as well. Okay, lastly, let's land the plane where Malachi does. So he closes his sefer with the following words in Malachi four verses four through six. He says, remember the Torah of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So as the final Tanakh, uh, Old Testament prophet here, what does Hashem leave us with? What are his concluding thoughts? Pretty simple. Remember the Torah and be on the lookout for Elijah to usher in the final age. That is where things land. And that's where God wants us to, 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 to really uh, be looking for and to, to keep in our minds, you know, here at the end and the closing of the, um, of the Tanakh here. So I want to just take a minute to uh, just wrap this series up. I hope you've enjoyed this 18-week, 18-part series on the Treasar. Uh, I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, the main takeaway for me is the continual emphasis from the prophets about the power of teshuva, repentance, and the importance of prioritizing kindness, empathy, and mercy. If these things are missing from our devotion to Hashem and Yeshua, then we are way off. And it's these things that uh, need to be cultivated and promoted in order to 
uh, give a taste of the just society that the prophets longed for and said will come. So may Hashem help us to walk in the ways of the prophets, especially during these times, by representing the values that they were so passionate to see normalized in their generation and ours. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you for listening to this audio message from Tikvat David Messianic Synagogue. We would love to get to meet you in person sometime at the synagogue, so come join us for Shabbat or one of the holidays. Also, you can join us in building Messianic Judaism, whether you live in the Atlanta area or far away, by financially contributing to our synagogue. You can learn about the options for giving under the Donate tab at tikvatdavid.org. At Tikvat David, we would love to have you stand with us as we are building a Yeshua-centered Judaism for Israel and the nations. Shalom.